All right. Well, welcome to uh, Fuck You Friday. It's another episode. I'm very, very excited. Uh, I'm your host, Wynn Silberman. This is my co-host, Casey LeBlanc, and we have an amazing special guest today <laughs> in Rashid Davis. Rashid has quite a history. Uh, has played for a number of different, actually, professional leagues. Uh, the Sabercats, uh, we have the Chicago Bears, we have the Detroit Lions, and uh, we're really excited to be able to host you today and, and um, just really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to, you know, whatever we talk about today. Yeah. Yeah, and you were once my agent, too, so yeah, once, don't forget to tell the people that. Yeah, a long, long time ago, I did actually represent <laughs> Mr. Davis We've got We've day. got a, a former agent and a former teammate. So uh, Rashid and I have been friends for, for a long time. We met since 2000, right? Since 2000, so 21 years now. Played football together for a couple of those years and, and uh, more importantly, had a lot of fun stories and a lot of good times together. So I'm excited about this one. Yeah. And 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 just uh, just stepping back, I know every time that we should do this, and, and it's... Um, why we're here, Casey, and, and I want to just get that out there real quick, and I want to jump right into being able to interview Rashid, but um, one of the things we talked about at lunch is Rashid was like, look, what, what the fuck is this podcast about? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> yes. What are we doing here? And so just real quick, if you don't mind, just going a little bit of the origin, then I want to jump right into things. Well, it's interesting. So the origin started at San Jose State, mm -hmm. and, and we, you and I talked about it, and I've talked about it on the podcast before, but if anyone epitomizes what we're talking about in this podcast, it'd be Rashid. So mm -hmm. All of the stories that we're going to tell and all of the different things that experiences that you've had, I want to know your mentality because there's very few people in my life that have influenced mentality like you have for me, mm -hmm. right? So I take the experiences of people and in, in, in relationships that I've had, and there's been a, only a couple of them that have really exemplified like this crazy mentality of fucking getting after it when no one else is. And so- mm -hmm. You're a, a freak of nature when it comes to that. You're the most mentally tough human being that I think I've ever been around. And so the Fuck You Friday, at least this episode, has to go back to that and, oh. and the, the mentality that you have in all of these different experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, mm -hmm. and how you actually overcame some of these different mm -hmm. things or how you actually mentally break through a lot of these barriers that when most people say, oh, it's, it's time for me to sleep or it's time for me to be finished. So I'm really excited to hear what's been going on in your head. Cause I, I was lucky enough to be around it for a couple of years. I was mm -hmm. lucky enough to be influenced for a couple of years and, and, and beyond. Cause we're, we've maintained friendship for a long, long time. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to, to understand what, what the, what the background and the origin and how you do all these things. All right. So first off, we're going to get toast to you, toast to win for this podcast yeah, before absolutely. we get started, right. yeah. before we, we get really little, into this. This, this, is, this is a first. <laughs> this is a first. Right. So, um, man, it's, uh, you know, my story is long and, and, and crazy and goes all over the place. Well, let's start. Let's start. I'd like to start. Uh, your mom is such an amazing influence in your life. Let's, mm -hmm. let's start with describing your family, a little bit of your family background, how many brothers and sisters you have, because mm -hmm. that actually goes into, um, some decisions that your mom made early on that I feel really impacted your life. So can you start yeah, there? Sure. Yeah. My mom is, uh, well, I'm one of nine kids. My mom has uh, seven boys and two girls. I'm right in the middle. I'm number five of nine. I was raised by her and my great aunt Bertha, who's tattooed on my arm, uh, in South Central L.A. So we grew up in pretty much poverty. My father was killed when I was eight years old, murdered by some gang members. A drive-thru, right? Uh, he was at, you know how you can't go to a drive-thru now uh, because w without being in a car? Like, that's why. You, literally, there's 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 legislation uh, in California yeah. that's that directly tied to uh, Rashid's father being being murdered at, through a drive-through at a McDonald's, I believe. So he went to a McDonald's in Linwood, California. When you're eight years old, do you do you have, does well, what what do you know what's going on? I mean, you know you you're oh, man, yeah, so no, you're pretty young. No. So I was I was eight when it happened, um, and it was he was missing for a few days, right? Like I was at that time living with my my aunt Bertha. Because I had just gone back to school at Trinity Elementary School. And uh, my dad was in a few of my other siblings were living at my aunt's house. My other aunt, Bernadette, in Linwood. And so he came home from work one night, was hungry, uh, wanted something other than what they had in the house. Hopped on her bike, went to McDonald's, uh, knocked on the door. They wouldn't let him in. Two young, you know, once, one was, I think, 17. The other was in his early 20s, 20, 21 years old. Uh, saw him, came out, asked him for his money before he could turn around. They shot him in the head. And so he was, uh, so, so he was missing for several days. And the way I found out is kind of, is it was kind of like a, now it's a traumatizing experience the way I found out because we, um, we didn't know 
but my aunt Bertha told me. My aunt Bertie told me. Uh, she and I say it's traumatizing because it took me a long time for me to realize like how traumatizing it was, and I literally had to pray to cry because I couldn't cry. And you know, uh, men don't cry in America, right? Like we don't cry. And we're told, and my dad would always say, you know, I'll give you something to cry about if you're crying. Like, I'll give you something yeah. to cry about. So whoop, whoop for ass. us men, we're, we're told to suppress our emotions, suppress that shit. And so when my Aunt Bertha told me, she said, um, I, th I think I know what happened to your dad. And I was like, late night, you know, I'm eight years old. And she's like, but if I tell you, you can't cry. <laughs> and I said, Okay. And she's like, I think he's dead, you know. And I didn't quite know what that meant. I started to tear up, and she said, uh, "But you said you wouldn't, go, you weren't gonna cry, right?" Mm -hmm. And so I had to suck it up, and it was hard. And I didn't really cry at the funeral or anything, you know. Um, I had a few tears in, in the limo, but I, I still didn't understand. Like I was only eight, I really didn't get it. Um, but that was like one of my first acquaintances with death, like in, in violence. Usually we wait until middle of the podcast to start going into the deep stuff. We usually <laughs> like to warm you up, but uh, that was, uh, and that, that, that's a insane yeah. story. So do you, do you feel like what, what, what's been the impact on, on you with, with that in your life now? So I'm sure at that point it's hard to process, but now that you're, you're probably what, 40, you're probably 41. Age, you're 41. Okay. Yeah, I'll be so 42 in July. Okay. So we're same age. So yeah. what, what, when you look back on that, what what impact do you think that that had on your on your life? Um. What well, right now, uh, I think one of the things that it helped me do that is probably a benefit is it helped me learn to compartmentalize. Like I compartmentalize everything, um, so most things don't really stop me from achieving whatever I'm trying to achieve. Right. So there's a lot of things that have happened to me. Some that we'll touch on. Some that we probably won't. Yeah. But yeah, um, that I've been able to compartmentalize from my uh goals or what my everyday life sure did right. did did because you grew up in in south central right yeah yeah right so uh, most people know that that's not a great area to grow mm -hmm. up in so when your father dies at, at eight or nine years old w you go into i mean you're in the middle of of crip where all the yeah, crips yeah, are right yeah, yeah. Well, is your fa your family i mean some of your family members were members oh, yeah, of yeah gang members crips and so uh, how did you either how did you make decisions on what you were going to do right like most people are trying to bring you into that lifestyle when you're in the middle of it how did you navigate through that and, and get to a point where you could actually go on and do something with your life man that's a great question strange thing though i was uh steered away from it by those same family members by those same friends right like and when i talk to people to this day they'll say there's something different about you than the rest of us Right. There was just something different. Several things. Several things. Right. Um, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't my athleticism. I, I felt like I was the best athlete in my family from the time I was six years old. That being said, I didn't play sports. Right. Like I not organized. Um, I played we played out in the streets. We played against friends and, and other things like that. Um, but there was just ment mentally. I couldn't wrap my, my head around being in a game. I couldn't wrap my head around. Um, having to look over my shoulder and having to shoot other people, kill other people like that just didn't vibe with me, it didn't jive with me. So, what what about your mom's influence and decision making process in terms of? I believe were you the only child that she decided to, uh, from what I understand, almost take you out of of a scenario and and put you in a different school system in no, a way? Were you no, no. So, how did this work? So, I mean. Because you were in San Fernando Valley, specifics, right? Yeah, I don't know the specifics of the uh, the busing program, uh -huh. right? But sometimes you hear people talk about the, the busing program. Yeah, I, I categorize that, but I, yeah. I want to explain that you were kind of taken out so, of an yeah. environment. So um, it was kind of a normal thing mm. in my neighborhood. From I went to Trinity Street Elementary School. Uh, I, I grew up on San Pedro and King Boulevards in, mm. in L.A. That, that, that was my area, and Trinity was right there. Um but most of us in the neighborhood, we either went to the local high school, which would be Jefferson, or we went to Manual Arts. Um, they were about equal distance apart from where I lived. Um, but the other option was to apply to the busing program, right, and, and be bused out to Granada Hills in San Fernando Valley, which is what my mom did with myself and my two older brothers. Okay. Um, my sister and my oldest brother went to Hamilton, which is on the west side of Los Angeles. They were bused to a, a 
better neighborhood, better area as well, um, which affected my, my sister in a phenomenal way. Like, she's, uh, she ended up going to college, and she had great friends, and uh, she was exposed to a lot of different things. My brother, my, on the other hand, my oldest brother was caught up in the gang life, and, and so he ended up dropping out of school, and my two older brothers also d- dropped out of school at some point. Um, and so for me, she bust me to Robert Frost, Element, or junior high school, and uh, from Ju- Robert Frost, I went to John F. Kennedy. When you were a kid, looking back, did you have a mentality that was different than other kids? Did have you always had this? Uh, and, and, and does part of it stem from going through something traumatic with your father at a young age? But because I know you, I know some of the mentality mm-hmm. and how different it is than ninety-nine point nine percent of human beings walking the face of the earth. Did, when did you recognize it, and was it at that time? Um, or do you I've recognize been, it now? I, I recognize it now. I've always been different, um, misunderstood or not understood. Um, In what way? Because I'm a thinker. Like, I'm a processor. I, I think, I feel deeply, and I think deep. Now, I feel a lot more now, and I allow my, a lot more emotion now to come out from praying to God to allow me to cry. Because when my brother died, again, which was another traumatic thing when yeah. I was at San Jose State, uh, 2000, my brother died after the TCU game. Yeah. He died in a car accident. And um, I was even able to car- compartmentalize that. That never stopped me. Like I don't think anybody or I even made a big deal out of it. Like I just went out and played the next game. But I couldn't cry. And that's when I knew I had a problem. Like That's when I knew. Huh. So you think part of it is that you're hardened. Part of it is that you're compartmentalized. So yeah. part of it is, is it you didn't allow yourself to feel. I didn't allow myself to feel shit. Like I just, I just but, lived. But I have a question. I, I have a question as a, as an athlete and, and a business professional. There, there's this. It's kind of a two edged sword. The word compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's an advantage, right? Yes. Because if you if you learn how to do that, you almost equate it with mental toughness. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there is that raw emotion, the 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 human condition, being human. Yes. That you're not allowing yourself to do in yes. a way. So, you're absolutely so right. How how do you how do you uh, manage that? Like, what exactly can you do to move forward? What because, is it? Because if 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 Rashid didn't compartmentalize, it would have broken him. Right. At that point, I didn't have any support system. Yeah, I was no way. Even if he did, it. it still would have been tough yeah. to like. Those are those are things that most people could never get yeah. process or get through. So to compartmentalize probably was a savior to you. Yes. So one mm-hmm. of the things that I'm learning in my adult life um, is that what uh, helped me to survive is not necessarily what's going to help me thrive as an adult. That's mm-hmm. a great quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like what I use to survive. And, and one of the things that was an epiphany for me about a year ago was that, you know, I'm not a stupid dude. I'm a, I'm a pretty intelligent guy. I consider myself pretty intelligent, but I got horrible grades, shit grades growing up. Yeah, sort of this guy. Yeah. yeah. But part of it was, um, you know, I had so many other things going on in my head, so many fears and, and whatnot of being shot or jumped or whatever. I wasn't a big dude. I'm not a big dude now. Like, but then I was really small. I didn't really grow until my junior year in high school, going into my senior year. So I had all of these, you know, different fears, and football sort of helped me to overcome those things. And the compartmentalization of it, uh, of all of the shit that I was going through, yes, it was a benefit. It helped me to survive all of those things and achieve. The epiphany was that, I used a lot of my intelligence back then to navigate my environment, like to survive. That's what my intelligence was being used. Like I learned how to read people. I learned how to understand situations. I learned how to, I had like a sense of when some shit was about to pop off. Mm. If it was going to pop off, I was ready to get out of there. Well, you know, so and let, let's talk. Well, let's talk about the role you're, you're touching on the role of sports, and mm-hmm. obviously this is a theme that you know there, there's a lot of athletes out there that, that like to use the mantra. Look, uh, playing football is what I do. It's not who I am. I get yeah. that. Yes, but but just stepping back and moving, understand the role of sports for you, and let's let's go to San Jose State because this is yeah. a place where you guys met. Yeah. Um, what was the role of sports? Did that help you um, in any way and navigate through those years in life where you're Fuck in college? Yeah, what what, what was yeah. it? What the reason I ended up being such a good player, in my opinion, was not just that I had this God-given ability to run and jump, right? Hmm. 
Great teammates. Football. I had phenomenal teammates. <laughs> I did that. I did that. We had good times. We had good. I had good teammates. Um, but it was the the fact that football was an oasis for me. Hmm. Like when other guys would complain, especially when I was at JUCO, of how hard football was and how hard practice was and all of these other shit. You know what I mean? I would look at them and I say, "Yeah, it was hard." You know, I'd be going along to get along kind of deal. But in my head, I was always saying. Yeah, Fucking right, yeah, right. Like, if you think this is hard, my real life is hard. I don't know shit. Like, this ain't real life. And so, for me, football was an oasis from real life. So, mm-hmm. but I do had you to feel go like? Do you feel like? So, this is this is one of the things I've always been curious about about junior college. Junior college, people find the negative. They always yeah. think it's hard, right? That's yeah. one of the reasons they're in junior college because their mm-hmm. mentality has just never mm-hmm. been able. They can't get over this hump of mm-hmm. finding the difficulties in life or football. It's always mm-hmm. the coach. It's a it, the conspiracy. And you were able to step away and go, uh-huh, yeah, sure. But but like, I was different from them. That's what I'm saying. I you, didn't play in high school. Mm. That, that, like, Wait, I didn't so have let me get any, to just stop, stop the press. Yeah. So you didn't play any football in high school? I or? played as a sophomore one year. I was about 90 pounds, five foot nothing, 90 pounds. I, had, I re- returned one kick, didn't really do anything. So when people say I didn't play, like most times people say I didn't play in high school. If you ask the high school coach, John Francola, who actually coached my little brother at Kennedy. Um, he would say he was a PE all-star. Like, I never played. So when I got to San, or got to West L.A., uh, Juco, I was an, uh, open like a, a, a fresh slate. I didn't have all of these preconceived ideas of what people thought of me and what I was going to be. I was just building from scratch. And so I, I was there first. Cause I didn't want to look like a punk. Cause my cousin came and said, "Come play." Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And so I was like, "All right, I'll play." And I, once I started playing, the hard work, the dedication to it, all of that stuff was a distraction from my real life. And so I dedicated myself to it. And then the fact that I ended up starting my fr- freshman year. Um, I don't know if I started every game. But at I started State? a few games. No, at at, at West LA. At the, oh, I'm sorry. At yeah. the JUCO. Okay. And that just gave me, the more success I had, the more I wanted to work at it. So fast forward to San Jose State. I want yeah. to ask you some questions about San Jose State because it's super interesting to me. And mm-hmm. I don't, we've never really actually talked about no, it. No, we haven't. We no, haven't. You no. and I haven't. No. No, we haven't. Okay, so you look back on your experience at San Jose State. Favorite memory that you've ever had? TCU, man. That game-winning catch I had. When we both ran, I forget what we called it, but um, I trailed you. And you ran to the corner, and I ran to the post. Arroyo popped it over Changed the middle. Changed my whole life. I was like, why didn't you throw me the ball? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because I wasn't open. <laughs> because everybody went to you. Yeah. But I came underneath the linebacker dropping, right? And so I had this ability to – I have very good spatial awareness, right? So I don't have to see the person. I kind of feel them. So I felt and went underneath him, and Arroyo threw it. Perfect pass. I jumped up, caught it. We score. We celebrate We celebrate. TCU was ranked sixth or six or, six or something like yeah. that. Goalposts come down. Yeah, it was yeah. for us. It was that, that was so a, that, that was, was a big deal. We were the, we were actually we were actually really good that year. So we were really fucking good. Yeah, we were really good that year. Yeah. yeah. All right. So worst experience at San Jose State. <laughs> fucking senior year, Fitz Hill. Fitz Hill's the worst coach I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I, I hope you hear this too. But, uh, yeah. Oh, he will. I might, I might still be upset. Well, from what I hear, well, <laughs> Both I know, of us. That yeah. I know people were upset. Players were upset because he literally it was Sandlot, right? I mean, he'd really drop a play. He'd call a timeout and drop a play, and like, hey, let's just do this, and you go to the corner. Like, well, we would pick we would ball. come in at halftime, right? And and as a receiver, you you see what's in front of you, but you're not looking at what's on the other side. What's in the, like mm-hmm. what the what the D line is doing? So we would come in the, in the at halftime, and he was like, Casey, what what do we do? I'm like. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> throw it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my answer. You're always open. Yeah, <laughs> we're always well, see, open. He, um, I didn't even have that experience because I didn't, I wasn't involved. But I will say this: um, I think everything happens for a reason because because of that situation. Because I went from being I led the team in receiving as a junior, like I averaged 19.6 yards a catch. Not not that we're being specific. Yeah, I know I know specifically because I know exactly what I fucking lost. Like as a senior, I went from that to I think I had six catches my senior year. Oh my god. Yeah, we were we were really different. So we returned 20 of 22 starters and we were a ranked football team beating nationally ranked teams. Like we were we were a real football team. So we our, our expectations were 
we're going to run this shit and yeah. we're going to be really good. So yeah. we were confident. We were cocky we, and we were ready to go and we were training. We were, yeah. we had the athletes, sure. new coach comes in. And so I agree with you. And the thing that I agree with you on is things happen for a reason. So for me, I knew my talent would only take me so far, mm -hmm. but what I could learn in college through sports mm -hmm. could take me much further. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I saw things from a leadership perspective, mm -hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly through coaching that has transformed my life. Mm -hmm. And so I saw, and sometimes it's actually good to see what people are doing wrong yes. because you can learn more from the losses than you can from the wins or from good leadership versus mm -hmm. bad. And sometimes the bad leadership, you're like, whoa, whoa. This, this is this so is, inherently different yeah, yeah, that I know what I I know what to not do. Yeah, and so yep. when someone came in, Fitzhill, uh, <laughs> and I saw what he did to a program mm -hmm. and to people that changed them from a leadership perspective, it changed my entire yeah. life. And so I knew at a young age, I wanted to lead. I wanted to be at the front yeah. or the back. And I wanted to help people achieve things that they never thought that they could. And, and being around a leader who wasn't prepared, was ill-prepared, mm -hmm. and was not a leader by nature or by learning, mm -hmm. uh, changed my entire life. So that was my big takeaway from San Jose State. Man, you were a phenomenal leader even before that, right? I don't know if you remember, but when when they came in and told us they were firing you know, Coach Baldwin, and you stood up in front of the whole team, in front of everybody, and, like, basically gave the AD your, your, your the words, business. Your piece, the business, piece of your mind. You didn't think about us, right? Like, I learned from you in that moment how to advocate mm. for myself, how to advocate for uh, other people, how to lead in that moment, right? Like, you had the ability to see, like, what he was doing was fucked up, and you had the nuts to say it was fucked up and not just sit back and, and absorb you know, just being handled, basically, which is what was happening to us. We we had a good year. Things were happening. Yeah, we didn't win and go to the go to a bowl game, but we were seven and five, I think, at the time. Um, after not being shit years before that, and you got twenty some seniors coming back. I think we may even have more than that coming back. Um, and for you to be able to stand up and say, "Yo, uh, this ain't right," uh, was for me a, a a good leadership moment for you. Um, so I don't know if you knew that, but I, I looked up to you for that. that well, I've, I've had about enough of that talk. I, I don't yeah, need his ego to be pumped up anymore. So let's, <laughs> let's just move it right along. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go to, let's go to after, after college. Let's go yeah. to, let's go to your, um, embarking on your professional career. Cause it's, it, it's fascinating to me, um, mm -hmm. how you maintain your focus and your goal of, of making to the NFL. Cause it didn't start like that. It yeah. didn't start like that. What happened after, uh, you obviously had aspirations to go to the league, but it didn't really work out for you in the beginning, correct? No, so we got to go back to college for that. So um, Nevada game that year, um, because I didn't, I wasn't doing anything, you know, uh, that year on the offensive side of the ball. Mm -hmm. I played sparingly on offense up until that game, but that game I got like literally no reps in the first half. They had Nate Burleson, I think he caught 300 yards and he went for 300 yards receiving in that game. And um, AWOL was out that game because uh, he got suspended. He went AWOL, I guess, <laughs> you know. Like, he had the nickname, but he, he actually went there. But um, so when we go into halftime, it's a close game, right? Edel's playing well. Uh, you guys are playing well offensively. Defensively, we're not doing very much at all. We can't do anything with Nate. And uh, so – I forget our defensive coordinator's name. Who I don't I don't remember. Anyway, but he was also the DB coach. And so uh, we go into the receiver room, and I'm sitting there kind of like dejected and out of it. And he walks in, and he says, I don't know if you remember this, but he says, Coach, give me Rashid. And, uh, and, and so I got up. I said, me? I think he said even give me him. And I got up, and I walked with him to the DB room. And he drew on the whiteboard. He say, uh, that's him. That's you. He drew a figure eight around us. I said, I want you to do what you did in practice. You know, and at practice that year, I um, was playing around on uh, special teams as the, the, the corner for Gunner. And I was a gunner. I was a pretty good gunner. They couldn't stop me from getting down the field. But they were talking shit, you know. And if you talk shit to me, I'm... <laughs> I don't really like I don't I don't get after you until you get after me kind of deal, right? So, God, I love talking shit. Yeah, like a, so, I love it. I Casey's love. different, but like they were for I me. I love it. So they started talking shit, the DBs, and I was like, I bet you I can stop you, but you couldn't stop me. Ah. So that's how he knew that I could do it. Ah. 
So I was shutting them down, right? And so he came and said, do what you did in practice. And I went in that game, and no one caught a pass on me that game. And we ended up winning that game. And I started at corner for the rest uh, of that season. So I, I ended up in three and a half games with 26 tackles and 200 just so, Just so people understand, and I'm sure you do, you, you sort of played. But I, <laughs> but I think the point is, is like to play two ways in high school, the, only the best athletes do it. Yes. To play two ways in college, no one Unheard does of. it. It, do, of it, it doesn't happen, right? At any, at like whether it's San Jose State or, or yeah. Alabama, mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen. And to go in and have someone like at halftime who's pissed off about the season and all this yeah. stuff going, I mean, like it, it's remarkable, yeah. like that level of athleticism. Yes, just so we're clear, like that is. It, I appreciate that. I just wanted to play, right? Like that's it for me. But it you was would never all say. Like, I don't think people understand like the difference between yeah. playing offense, training for offense for an entire year, and then just being like, "Hey, flip it on the other side of the ball." Because there's a different mentality to play yeah. offense to play defense, right? Yeah. Right. You have to have a level level of like crazy. Yeah, I'm yeah. slightly crazy. Yeah, we yeah. all. But you know that. Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> you know that. That's why on I like the football you. Field, I'm slightly <laughs> that's, I like. that's, why, that's why we always got along. I will fight anybody. I know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. but so that's what I mean. Uh, leading to the NFL, sure. well, going professional. From that point was, well, at the last game of the year, we played Stanford. I had a good game. I had an interception. I actually dropped another interception. But um, we're playing Stanford, and the Sabercats coaches are in the stands, right? And in arena football at the time, you had to play both ways. There was no, like, uh, it wasn't no specializing. So I had to play corner. I had to play receiver. And because they saw me, and then I forget which coach that was on the – the San Jose State team, he was a, a coach for San Jose State the year before where he knew what I could do offensively. He was also there. And so when they saw me playing corner, they were like, he started like, yo, I know what he could do on the offensive side of the ball too. And so they saw that. And while everybody else um, was thinking about, well, how do I get to an NFL team, that Tuesday – after that game, I tried out for the Sabercats, and I was under contract by everybody else. Uh, the, just, just so everyone knows, the Sabercats is our member football. of arena yes. football, so it's yes. it's distinguished from the NFL. But it was basically indoor football, and and let me tell you, particularly when you played, they're real athletes. At they're that real time, athletes. they're real athletes. Serious, it was real football. Like, we it was real good. football. Yeah, it was real good. And the Sabercats won like what seven in a row. They were actually a good football team. We won two. Uh, Two championships, two championships while I was there. But they were always good, years. always in the they playoffs. Were good. They Our bet was a coach. Yeah. Yeah. So always that good. is so that's let me ask why you a question. Let me ask you a question. Reason. So we were we were we were terrible our senior year. I mean yeah. our, the team was terrible, yeah. everybody hated everybody. Yeah. I mean it was just it was a mess from a leadership mm-hmm. perspective to a player perspective to just what the opportunity was and then what we delivered on the field. So that Stanford game, I just remember a lot of people just heads down, people were depressed, people were like, What the fuck just happened? And so you had then done the same thing, kind of taking your senior year and, and gotten to the end, started to have some success, started to look at arena league. What was your mentality? Were you thinking, am I an NFL player? Am I like, where were you at? My mindset was always that I was capable of playing in the NFL. Okay. I, I just, I had a feeling I had, a, I knew that if I was given an opportunity that I could do it, but mentally, physically, I could do it mentally. If I had gone that year, I would not have made a team, you know, because Unless somebody saw me as a project and was willing to take me as a project, but mentally I wasn't strong enough because it was only again my fourth year playing, and it was the first time that I ever dealt with a difficult coach in Fitz, somebody that I couldn't play for, right? Like, and I I tried everything to play for him. So you played for a lot of coaches. What are what are some of the things that you look back on on the good and the bad coaching? Who what resonated with you? Because you're a you're a you're a great teammate. You're yeah. a great. Uh, person to have on your squad. Tell me a little bit about the leadership things that you've learned with having the good and the bad for coaching. Uh, well, first of all, the best coaches anywhere have the best assistants. That's like the number one thing that I re- I recognize. So good leadership is unafraid to hire good talent, wow. right? And they listen to their talent and they delegate to their talent. They allow their talent to win, right? And so that's number one. But the other thing that I learned that was mostly uh, instrumental in my life was Terry Malley looked at me one day, who's a coach at San Jose State now. Yeah. And he was the OC at uh, the Sabercats. And he was riding me hard one day, and I was struggling mentally to deal with it. Um, I knew I had talent, but I was 
I was kind of beat down after my senior year. I didn't have a lot of confidence. But he looked at me in my eyes after a particularly tough practice, and he said, Rashid, never let me believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And my life ain't been the same since. So I love, I'm sorry yeah, to interrupt, but my, yeah. my, I love this topic and I'm fascinated by the idea of confidence and yeah. even confident people, like the most yeah. confident people, people that have been in the NFL for seven years and played professionally, mm -hmm. they lose their confidence. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, do you have any tips or as you look back in your career and even your life and things as you've gotten older, how do you pick yourself up? How do you mm -hmm. regain that confidence? How do you, when you're at the top, you double down. Yeah. When you're at the bottom, dust yourself off. Mm -hmm. What What are the things that you look back on from a confidence perspective, and what have you learned? I think, one, you got to play for something greater than yourself, kind of. Like, for me, I, I always said um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, right? So I, I, when I focused on God rather than focusing on the coach or the whatever else, I was able to play better. Like, I, I focused on that. That was one. But the other thing it takes is to be able to be introspective. Like, really look at yourself. The good, the bad, the ugly, especially the ugly. To be able to embrace the suck in you and say, what am I going to do to change that? So if, you, if you're struggling with confidence, you got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, why am I struggling with confidence? And you... You have to be able to pick yourself up out of that. So uh, on that topic in 2008, a lot of things happened in my personal life. Um, but I ended up having one of my – it was my best year statistically in the NFL receiving-wise. I think I had 400 yards or something like that. But it was my worst year because I dropped more balls that year than I ever dropped before. Um, but I had a lot of personal things that I was unwilling to share because of that compartmentalization uh, deal. And I didn't share with anybody because I never wanted to be the guy. I'm making excuses for this stuff. Now, now I see it as a detriment. Like I should have shared and I should have sat down with somebody and I should have fixed it. But then I was trying to be tough, tough it out. Right. And so I had a, I had a rough year, dropped more passive. Well, the, um, what I ended up having to do at the end of the year, because I lost a lot of confidence, I had to go away. Like, I had to leave and train away from home for the first time in my professional career. I had never done that before. And so I went and trained in Arizona with uh, a good friend of mine, Lance Briggs. Um, and I stayed with – he and I stayed together in an apartment. And we trained at Tucson, University right? of Arizona yeah. in Tucson. And, and I did a lot of, like, soul searching. I met with, a you know, a therapist and talked about what was going on, uh, a guy named John Ellsworth. Um, in, in San Jose. Yeah. And um, shout out to John. Uh, but yeah. I, I really did. I had to start working on myself mentally to build myself back up. And I was able to play several years after that. But I was on the verge of being out of the NFL because I I just had a rough, rough year. Um, yeah, that's, so. a good, that's a good snapshot in business, though, too, or in life, as you like to, to draw to. Um, sometimes if you have, uh, the wherewithal and self acknowledgement that you're going through something, it's yeah. almost the most important thing to, uh, be able to pick yourself back up is recognizing that you're actually down. Yes. Well, and the other yes. thing too, that he said, which is really important is it, it, a lot of people make the mistake of looking at everything that's on the outside and it's easy. It's called looking through the window or looking through the mirror. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a really good, um, analogy of, you know, when things are, when things are good, yeah. you know, they're looking uh, yeah. through the mirror or, sure. you know, and, but it's just blaming other people or introspectively mm -hmm. looking at yes. it and saying, what can I change? Right. Like things aren't good. Confidence mm -hmm. isn't good. Why? Yes. Why? And, and what can I do about it? Right. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not what, what's going to change in my circumstances. What am I going to do personally to, to actually make, make a difference? Yeah. And that, I think that's a really important point. It's extremely important. It's not about, and I truly believe this life is, you know, or success or it's not about what happens to you. It's about what you, how you respond to what happens. Well, let me give to you a you. specific example, and right, and right. this is look, you went through the SaberCats. The chances of you making an NFL roster as an arena player are pretty much zero percent. By the way, I mean literally, it's like one percent or two percent of players would ever make it from our leagues to the NFL. The first opportunity that when the Chicago Bears called and you were blessed, and and I would say 
again, Terry Malley, Coach Malley, it was played a huge role in providing yeah, you this Church. opportunity. And Coach, Coach Church. Church. Coach Church. Um, those are very important people. Uh, even in my life, I look up to them. Um, but let's talk about that that adversity that you met with that yeah. first time and uh, when you're trying out for the Bears. Man, right? uh, I'm under contract. First training camp. I break my hand on the second day of training camp. I'm playing corner. i covering somebody. I break on a route and I slip, put my hand down, snap the first metacarpal. In, in and, and we would, we would talk every day. Uh, yeah. and so this, I, I get a call. It's, um, I, I broke my hand. You're like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, are, are you hurt or are you injured? <laughs> yeah. There, there's a, there's a moment and, and we both discussed it and it's like, look, this is your shot. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the trainer and you tell these, these mm-hmm. guys that your broken hand, you're not playing anymore, and they're, they're, yeah. you're done. So it's up to you, but this is it, man. You're going to do it or not. By the time I talked to him, I had already gone to the trainers. You know the yeah. first thing I said to them? Never mind. No, I, I went and got <laughs> x-rayed, whatnot, and I looked at the x-ray technician, and she's like, it's broken. I said, they're not sending me home for a broken hand. I play corner. And so um, when the trainer came in, I looked at him and said the same thing. I didn't miss a damn practice. I returned punts that season. You, there's pictures of me on with the, the big internet cast. right now. Not with a cast, but with a splint. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, covering up these two fingers, I'm returning kicks. I'm returning punts. Every game, every practice, I didn't miss a day. Um, well, there's a great movie quote, and, and he just brought it up, but I love this movie quote. Yeah. It's like, are you hurt or are you, you injured, injured, right? Yeah. And hurt, get up, dust it off, and go play. Injured means you're going to the hospital. You're going to have yeah. surgery. Like, people get confused on one or the other. And I think it's like a life lesson that people need to understand, especially kids these days. Yeah. Cause everyone thinks I'm injured. Oh, this yeah. is the people don't understand on a scale of one to 10, what's a 10 and what's a one, mm-hmm. right? Everyone thinks everything is hyperbolic. Everything is, everything is intense. Cause yeah. social media, it's everything yeah. is amplified. Well, the same thing with being hurt or being injured. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people are hurt and don't know it. They yeah. think that they're injured. Injury yeah. means you're going to have surgery, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Like hurt means suck it the fuck up yeah. and perform like, yeah. or else, or else you're not going to get to where you want to go, right? Yeah. Like you got, sometimes you got to get up in the morning when you don't want to get up. Sometimes you got to work out when you don't want to work out. Yeah. Like if you want things that most people don't have, you have to be willing to do the things that most people won't do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's one of the things that, um, what, 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 what do you do? Cause I, I want to know, I want to get into your head a little bit. Yeah. What do you do that other people don't do? Like in your entire life, what, take me through the mindset, through the actions, through everything that goes on to be elite. Cause you're, you're an elite athlete, right? You are, you have God given gifts, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's why you play in the NFL. No. Well, my mindset during training was I'm going to push myself till I can't go anymore. To literally, I can't go anymore till I'm laid the fuck out on the ground. Every single day. That's what in practice or in training, not every day because you can't survive that way on days where it's, it's supposed to be intense. It needs to be intense. You need to challenge yourself, right? So I'm going to push myself in training till I can't go anymore. And I'm going to, when I'm laid out on the ground and whatnot, I'm going to, you know, whine, bitch, complain, moan, whatever yeah. it is, recover and get up and go some more. And that's how I trained myself. And by the time that the season started, if I was no longer falling out, Bitching and moaning and, you know, and I can just, and I never asked any, I paid to be trained. I paid somebody thousands of dollars every summer to train me because I know me. I can BS myself all day. Are you doing enough? Because that's another myth. They all think we're all so self-motivated that we'll get up and whatnot. And it's like Muhammad Ali said, I hated every moment of training. I hated every moment of training. So if I had to do it myself, I would BS myself. So I paid somebody for that accountability. Sure. Right. So I knew where I'm I'm lacking. This is that's one of the things that has made me successful is being able to understand where I'm lacking, but also being able to get help and being okay with getting help where I'm lacking. And that's and that's true in business, I would assume, right? Uh, not everybody's the best uh, accountant, for example. Not everybody's the best business manager, for example. But if you know exactly what your weaknesses are, you don't need to rely or be worried about yourself that you're weak at this position. Find a teammate. Yes. Find somebody to offset that weakness in order to win. Is yes. that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. You don't you don't have to be perfect at everything and great at everything. There are very few people that can do it all, right? There are some that can, and if you can, more power to you. That's great. But for those of us that don't, we just need to figure out a way to have success. Be good and, and do things that are that you're good at, 
be great at those things and whatnot, but also be willing to ask for help and get help in the areas or pay for the help. Like you can't in any business, like you know this better than that. You, if you're not unwilling to spend money, you can't make money. Yeah, yeah You got to spend that. money to make money sometimes. And that's the, that, that's how I looked at football. I had to spend money to train me so that I can make the money that I was necessary for me to make or that I was capable of making with my, like I, <laughs> Yeah. When I get intense, I, I, look, I have a better story about this, right? We're going we're gonna to squirrel moment right yeah, now, yeah. right? So I was, uh, you know, I have a charitable, charitable organization. It's called Saturday Place. It's an enrichment program for third and fourth grade Chicago public school students performing a year below grade level. Started in 2009. We're 11 years in. Helped over 600 kids. Um, now that that's out of the way, when we were at the very beginning of Saturday Place, he's, uh, his name is Ramadan Amun. He is the president of... Uh, Saturday place, a uh, president of the board. Um, we were at his house. We were doing a friend raiser, what we call it, fundraiser at a friend's house, yeah. inviting all our friends and having dinner. And so I'm having a conversation like we're having, just like I just did with this. I had a wine glass in my hand. I shattered the wine glass. <laughs> it was a glass for the for the record. That's plastic. This yeah. is plastic. So <laughs> no, the glass one. It was a glass. Can you, can you uh, just I for the people that are watching? Can you for the people that are watching oh. on YouTube? Can you can you see this <laughs> yeah, dude's that's, hands? That's, uh, <laughs> that's what's called an ET finger. So yeah, I have decent sized hands for a, uh, <laughs> for a guy my size. But I shattered the glass while talking to people about something that I was passionate about. Clearly, I'm passionate. I squeezed. Didn't even know I did. But it shows the role of emotion, right? <laughs> yeah, Emotion's yeah. important in winning. <laughs> yes. It is. Well, so you so you have a foundation. Talk a little bit about that. What that means to you now, and and mm -hmm. and, and why? And give us a little bit more background on that. For me, I believe I have a responsibility to myself and to society. That's how I live my life. I didn't make it to the NFL on my own. I had a lot of people help me along the way. I didn't. I didn't get to this level of success. So I don't necessarily believe in bootstrapping. I think. Um, yes, we do have to, um, our lives are our responsibility and we do have to do our part, but along the way, there's typically people that help us along the way. And I don't care if that person is just, or those people are your parents, because there's a lot of parents that don't give a shit. You know, they don't, they don't. So if you're, if it's just your parents, you didn't get here on your own. And so for me, my way to give that back is society, right? Like I have a responsibility to those that are coming behind me that I can help to, to give this wisdom, to do these podcasts, to talk about mm. my life openly mm. and candidly. Mm. Like I share, I'm, I'm an open book for the most part. There are very few things that I don't talk about openly. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of where I've come from because I am who I am. I've gone from being a poor kid in South Central Los Angeles with roaches and worried about, is a roach going to jump out of my bag when I go to class? And that embarrassment, right? To sitting down with CEOs of companies and pitching Saturday Place to them and getting them to donate money to, you know, an idea that I had in my head 11 years ago. Right? Well, that's, that's so, what's fascinating to me because I obviously, as, as, your, as your agent, I saw your drive and determination on the field. Mm -hmm. But the most beautiful thing for me in the context of Saturday Place is seeing you take on the challenge. And there's a lot of, there was a lot of people out there it was like, look, it's just another athlete trying to mm -hmm. do a foundation. And, and, and there was a lot of negative talk about what Rashid was trying to do. Mm -hmm. But you stuck with it and mm -hmm. had that same mentality that you took on the field. Yeah. And, and now what, you're in year 11? Year I mean, 11. I didn't know what that's the hell big, I was doing. That's a big deal. That's I had very deal. little idea of what I was doing. You know, I, you know, I just, one of the things that but I But you didn't relent. You've no, never relented. No, no. Because I was passionate about what I did. So. Is there any correlation to and, and I'm 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 asking because I don't know, but your father died around that age. Do mm -hmm. you? Because third and fourth grade is just yeah. to me as someone who this is the first time I knew you had a foundation. I didn't know the details of it, but third and fourth grade was when your father passed. Is there any? Yeah. Is there huh. anything with that age specifically, or how did you end up picking that 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 particular age? That grade level is important in a kid's academic success. Okay. Any kid, no matter where he comes from, where she comes from, it's, it's important. It's a pivotal year because. Uh, it gets more intense. Um, so if a kid isn't reading at grade level by the time they leave the third grade, that kid is now four times less likely to graduate from high school. You factor in poverty, now that same kid is 13 times less likely to graduate from high school. If you don't graduate from high school here in the United States, it's a 70% chance you go to jail, period. I don't care who you are. You, me, you, silver spoon, whatnot. So for me, yes, 
that age was pivotal for me, right? And so I recognized that in the development of Saturday Place. Saturday Place for really is a Saturday school program with taking into account all of me that I felt helped me become successful, right? So those things, so we do field trips roughly every four to five weeks. Those field trips are designed to get those kids to see beyond their existing circumstances. I can't take them out of their everyday life. I can't afford to. I'm not wealthy enough. You know what I mean? I don't have the resources. But I can take them out of it for a day, and I can show them. This is the whole world, right? This is, you're, you're not just, if I liken it to these uh, carpet squares, right? When we're kids, we see our carpet square, and we think our carpet square is the whole world. For me, I thought my carpet square everywhere was like my carpet square. Um, and when I watch TV and I hear people say, on TV, blacks and Mexicans are the minorities. I'd be like, bullshit, we're everywhere. Come to my neighborhood. But that's all I knew was wow. my square. But when I went on field trips, you know, I won a speech contest when I was in the sixth grade that I was forced to do and I was terrified of doing. Um, but my teacher said, do it. And I did it, right? And so that got me a field trip to San Pedro, you know, Catalina Island. Um, and so I was able to see that. My sister going to... Uh, BYU in Provo, Utah, going out to visit her in Provo, like that. All of those things opened my eyes to not just my square anymore. Now I saw all these squares. Being bused to school at, at, in Granada Hills to a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood, that helped me to see beyond my square. And because of that, that's why Saturday Place does field trips to get these kids to see beyond their square and understand that you can achieve beyond what you think you can achieve. You just got to be willing to work hard for well, this it. Is, Rashid, this is fascinating because this is what I see. <laughs> you've taken the model of your life's experience and success. Mm -hmm. You've reflected on your life's experience. And what was some of the measurements for your success? Seeing beyond your square, yes. right? That's what's helped you. That's what's propelled you, propelled you to the NFL, propelled you to success. Now you've taken that and taken your life's experience and in a, an effort to give back to society, mm -hmm. you've reflected on what helped you succeed. And what you're saying is it was opening um, to more experiences. It was yes. opening doors. It was showing things beyond what your normal little microcosm of a world is. Yeah. And that that's pivotally what this Saturday place is about, yes. which is fascinating. You've literally embodied your success, yes. wrapped it up in a foundation and go, look, this is how I got there. Now let me hope that I can bring someone else like yes. that. that. That's amazing. That's what I think America, that's why America is so great in my opinion is because if we really work to embody what our constitution says, right? Like we're all free. We have uh, the right to freedom. We have right to, to live our lives the way we see fit. Um, if we truly, really embody that, ever truly, really embody that, we will be the greatest country ever because the only reason that I see us being so successful is because of the, the, amount of experiences, different, differentiated experiences of, of, of everybody in the country, white, black, Mexican, Asian, whatever, right? The successes of these people and other people, when there's a problem, when you have a different viewpoint and you can see it from a different viewpoint, you have a different answer to the problem. But if everybody is seeing it from the same viewpoint, we can't come up with new, pro new, new answers to, to problems, right? And that's what makes America great is there's so many people from so many different backgrounds, historically speaking, if you just look through the archives of history, you'd see blacks, Mexicans, white, whatever, Russian, you know, I like, I don't like to use black and white as much because I think we're, you know, race is a social construct, but ethnicities matter. Like our ethnicities matter. If you're Irish, it matters. If you're Russian, it matters. If you're uh, Nigerian, if you're Ghanaian, you know what I mean? It matters. Uh, Mexican, whatever part of Mexico you're from, my wife's family's from Michoacan, right? Like all of those experiences matter and we should not dismiss our experiences and those, uh, you know, and th those cultural uh, experiences. We should embrace them because they all make this world that we live in great, right? So... Oh, that's a, that's a great it's a great point and understanding the mix of culture, um, particularly in this era. And I don't want to get too political, but I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart in terms of of race versus ethnicity. And and mm -hmm. you touched on something. I want to I want to um, kind of uh, illuminate this. You're saying that black and white. You don't like the concept of of black and white. 
that that ethnicity plays a role. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the one hand, you have the the line of birds of feather flock together, and mm-hmm. there are certain people and races that that fit one another. How, how do you how do you separate that? Because on the one side, there's people that want to they kind of hang out and, and tend to be with each other, right? At the mm-hmm. same race. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you want to say that you want to recognize race and, and, and celebrate everybody. But how does that, how does that really fit? Right? Because people tend to want to be with like-minded people with like, like type. Of I don't people. think there's anything wrong with hanging out who you, with who you want to hang out with. We can't like, you're free to live the way you, you, you so see fit. As long as in my opinion, it doesn't affect the way other people live. It doesn't oppress the other, other people around you. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not taking advantage of other people, right? Um, uh-oh. We got time. We got the clock. Uh, don't you worry. We got to get some, <laughs> we'll still, get no, some questions good. in. We're good. So we're for good. me, that's what matters more um, than necessarily, you know, race and whatnot. But I, I do understand uh, racism at a very high level. I understand oppression and all of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. I just refuse to allow those things to keep me from achieving whatever the hell I want to achieve. If you're racist, that's your problem. Just keep it away from me. Mm-hmm. Keep it away from my what, family. What is it, what is it like uh, being a black man with children in mm-hmm. this day and age? Because it's everything is so intense. Oh, and ta- walk me through maybe your <sighs> thought process in how to raise children that come from a multiracial background yeah. And the complexity of being a father during this time. It's extremely, in my opinion, uh, difficult sometimes when you have to explain when your, your child comes up and says, well, why do people hate us? You know, at, at seven, eight, nine years old, why did this kid say this thing to me? You know, I live in a predominantly white area and my son had to deal with and my daughter both had to deal with um, racism at four and five years old, you know, now I don't necessarily blame the children because I don't think they knew what they were saying in, in these specific instances. I just think they were making observations when they're, when, when things were brought up in class that were, um, uh, when it came to the civil rights movement and things like that, kids would just respond. And that's how I took it. But I also didn't leave it there. You know, I, I made sure I had a phone call with and my wife and I went into the school and sat down with the principal. And I give them credit. They sat down with us. They had real conversations. And I just felt like in those instances, teachers missed teachable moments. Right? Like you can't bury it. You can't hide. It is what it is. Let's talk about it since it came up in class. And I'm, that's how I believe with raising my children. If when sex and all of that other stuff comes up, if they start asking about it, they already know something about yeah. it. You might as well might have as well a conversation. You might as well address it. So let's or else, what it. else are they going to be hiding down the road? They're going to try to exactly. figure everything out on their own, right? And they don't have the experience and or the knowledge. we don't know anything as right. kids. We don't know shit, right? right? And well, so, especially today when you think you know everything because of social media. So right. teachers, right. I think, have an obligation. Educators have an obligation to have a conversation. Like, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about that. That's wrong. Why did you say that? Yeah. You know, I know you didn't understand what you said. Not blame the kid. Not, not point him out. Not suspend him. Not do any of this other stuff. Unless it's overt and we know, right? But this, these are five years, five year olds. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. They're just talking, you know. Yeah. And so let's. This is why that's wrong. Now I've taught my kids, and my son in this instance said that's wrong. That's racist. You shouldn't say that. He's five years old at the time, you know, and he had the wherewithal and the strength to be able to say that. Um, but for our educators, I just believe we should instead of brushing those things off, we should have those conversations so that we can get them out of the way. We can talk about them. It's true really with anything, right? I think when, even in, from a leadership perspective, very oftentimes people don't want to have uncomfortable conversations, Mm -hmm. business. There's been a lot of times where I'm like, man, I'd rather just not even talk about it. But Mm -hmm. I do know the times that I have talked about it and addressed difficult things and had to tell people things that they probably didn't Mm -hmm. want to hear or understand or, or probably were unaware of have changed lives and made either our organization or that person a lot better. And so it's, we're all teachers to some level. We're all influences on our friends or our sphere, our families. And I think it's important to, to communicate and talk and not assume. And I think that's where Mm -hmm. the dialogue has gotten, uh, it's uh, sometimes uncomfortable dialogue needs to happen and conversations need to happen. So it's, 
it's a, it's been a learning experience for, for, I think a lot of people over the last year, two mm-hmm. years, whatever. And, and, uh, so it's interesting to hear your take on it because raising young kids, they're so influential and mm-hmm. they, you know, they don't know what's going on. And especially right now, the world is turned upside down in so many different, well, different and, ways. And the issue is that the dialogue, the natural dialogue that you're speaking to, which is raw, rich, and important mm-hmm. has been politicized. Yes. And, and the, re- and what happens there, whenever something becomes politicized, you lose the truth. You lose the, the well because all you hear is is, is the extremes. Is extremes, yeah. It's all so, you hear, the extremes, no, that's, and that's I think where we are, and we need to move back to uh, the dialogue, to, to dialogue in the, in the center, and talking and about truth. it. So whenever I, we're dealing with humanity, whenever we're dealing with human, you know, nature, the human experience, yeah. it's not political, but we make it political. Right. Oh, absolutely. Especially Racism right now. is not political. It has to do with my life and death. You're Jewish yeah. or part Jewish, yeah. right? Yeah. Like. Racism has to do with your life and death, yeah, right? It's yeah. your life and death. So if it's not a political issue, right? Health, all of these things are not political issues. These have to do with our livelihood, our quality of life, right? But we take them in our society and, and they become and, these political issues and then we and then they become hockey pucks that get yep, passed you lose, around. You lose the crux. Well let's 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 have a little fun for the end of this. Oh, yeah, right? We yeah, got yeah, to, yeah, we, we, that was good. And, my bad. and I no and I appreciate no, it's not that. I wanted to go there and I'm I'm excited that uh we're not excited, but I'm proud that we were able to have the conversation. But I do wanna understand going from, you know, your your life and your trajectory and you get to the Super Bowl and yeah. walk me through like when you get to that moment, is that the highlight of your career? Is that the moment where you look back and you go, that was it? Or what, what was, what were some of the things playing in professional football for as long as you did, where you look at that was my top moment. That was it. Um, I wouldn't say that was my top moment, but I will say it was an extremely uh, powerful moment. It was, it was fun. It was exciting, disappointing, you know, <laughs> Yeah, you all, lost just yeah, for, for, the, for the record. For the record yeah. You lost to who and how, uh, by how we lost to the Colts and it was Peyton Manning's Peyton first Manning. and whatnot. And I'm still pissed off to re- at Rex Grossman because you were wide no. fucking open. I, uh, I actually, <laughs> I won't allow Don't be mad at Rex. <laughs> um, but we, you know, so that was a great experience. Was that the um, one where uh, Devin Hester returned the, yeah, the yeah, first? So, yeah. so this was funny. So I'll tell you a little story. So we're, we're in Las Vegas. We used to go to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl every year. The guy in front of us, there was a there was a prop bet, right? And he had a, he had a ton of cash, and he goes in front of us. He puts a hundred thousand dollars on the first score of the game would be a kickoff return. Oh my god, hundred thousand dollars! I'm not kidding what, what, you. What do you win so on we're, that? So, so we're sitting in the in this big in this big you know Super Bowl party in Los at the, at the Bellagio, and the first kickoff of the game comes. Devin Hester catches the ball. Boom! He goes and he returns the kick. All of a sudden. On the other side of the room, I see the guy screaming at the top of his lungs. He ended up winning it like I don't. It was like almost close to two million dollars. Oh my god, two million dollars! But first uh, of all, who bet? Yeah, who, who bets? Who bet? Because yeah, in yeah. Las Vegas, you know, you know, you got to put cash. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah It's not yeah. like on credit. Yeah, like going yeah. and getting a hundred thousand dollars cash. <laughs> this guy jumping up and down. So I know you were at the game. You don't give a shit. But anyways, for for us <laughs> no. little you know common people that are watching yeah. the game, I'm like, who the fuck bets on that? Who's got a hundred thousand so, dollars on that bet? What what was your most favorite pro moment for me uh, as your agent, I would say it's the uh, Minnesota Viking game when you caught a winning touchdown. The game winning touchdown. I called that play. I said, call this. I had been calling it all game. Caught Cowboy pump was a corner pump. Call it. He's playing outside. Now, what I think helped influence it even more was that I was drawn with the guy all game talking. You know, what do we, in the NFL? In the NFL, I want to know because I, I understand what it was like in college, and I understand mm. I was uh, I love I loved a jaw. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But in in the NFL, it's it's a profession. People kind of mm. respect each other a little bit more. But is there jaw jacking on, on, on both ends? Is that what 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 yeah, happens? In there's jaw jacking. It depends on who it is and who's talking. Like I didn't do a lot of talking. I didn't have a lot of you know guys talking a lot of crap to me. But um, this particular guy, we were you know chit chatting. Some of it, most of it, was in fun. But we ended up talking, and, and uh, he was playing outside leverage all game. I knew what he was trying to do, but uh, he was taking away the corner route, you know, seam in corner, um, try to funnel me back to the middle of the field. And he ended up, like, confirming, like, verbally. <laughs> like, <laughs> verbally. I, I kept coming back and saying, you know, coaches, like you said, Fitz came and said, what's going on? I came back and I said, look, he keeps playing outside leverage. He's whatever. They funnel me back to the middle. But not only is he doing that, he told me that's what they're doing. And st- like he said too much. <laughs> so because he said too much, 
I went over to the coach, and it was a tough point in the game, right? And you got to also give them credit for calling it because it's me. You know? Like, I'm not Bernard Berrien. I'm not Moosey Muhammad. I'm not Des Clark at the time. And, you know, it's my first year playing receiver uh, in the NFL. And for them to trust me and call that play and for me to win was a huge deal for me. And, and by the way, the reason that they trusted you is Jerry Angelo is the GM and, mm -hmm. and he would listen to me on what a great player you were week by week. So it's really, it was actually, <laughs> it was actually I was the reason why they let's threw Let's the bring ball. this back to a win. For me, the, the moment for me that, I, that sticks out more than anything was my rookie year after making the team. First game we play in Washington, you know, the Washington football team. And um, I'm standing next to Adrian Peterson, you know, the Bears' Adrian sure. Peterson. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking out on the field, and I'm kind of like in awe. Like, I can't believe. Like, yeah. I just made this team, and I'm playing in my first game, my first NFL game. So it's all kind of like surreal to me. And um, and are you at that point flashing to all the work and all the all the, all the – Times just, when someone told you no, or is it just like, wow, there's a lot of fucking people here. It's loud. No, I'm just kind of giddy. No, it was over 100,000 people, I think, yeah. in that stadium. That's right. You know, that's the biggest stadium, I think, in the NFL. So there's a lot of people. It's opening day, first game. But you're a thinker. So are you thinking <laughs> about all those different things, or are you I'm just, like, in the about, moment? I'm kind of in the moment. Like, this is amazing and, and in my head. And I end up chit-chatting with AP, and AP's like, he looks at me. He's like, see, you see all that green out there? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, that's money, and I got to go get it. <laughs> and I said, yo. And so that's been in my head ever since, and that, I, that resonated with my soul. Right. And I've been saying that to people for, for since then, for decades. Even, even yeah. still after, after even football, Even still probably. after, like, Well, so I'm, uh, so I'm curious. So for, for a, lot of, a lot of eyeballs on the NFL, right, and you got to mm -hmm. play seven seasons, what are some things that we don't know about the NFL, the, whether it's the business side of it the, during game day or just some things, random things that you, that you can look back on? And say, is there any weird rituals, for example? Like was there, is there a teammate that was, was a little, uh, you know, different in terms of what he would do to get ready for a game? Were you aware of anything, or was there anything out there that was unique? Um, not really in terms of rituals and things like that, but I think w one of the things that most people don't uh, – understand uh, about the NFL is how much and we you hear it all the time the politics of the game and yeah. whatnot there but there's a lot of that that goes on and there's a lot of guys that had drinks of water in the NFL that could actually fucking play there's a lot of people on the street right now that, that can, can play. play the game that yeah. should be playing at the NFL level that never either get an opportunity or they're just not at the right place at the right time yeah and there are guys who are good players that um, end up in the right situations and they look like all-stars. Yeah. But there are guys who are better than them that just never got an opportunity. So there's a lot of stuff being so drafted. So, things. for instance, the reason I made the Bears team was because they wanted me to make the Bears team. They, yeah. they, they, there was a legitimate opportunity there. But for guys like me, normally, it's a drink of water because – um, and you you know this. You you got tryouts and whatnot. So they, you're a camp body, right? They bring you in as a camp body most of the time. And because you come in as a camp body, you don't necessarily get reps unless people get hurt or you do something And just to clarify, a, a camp body is where you're you're really to be your fodder. You're you're there to kind of make sure that the guys are going to make the team are are getting ready for the season. There's well, that no, wasn't, that wasn't no my concern. mentality. Oh, I'm sure. No, no, no. But no, that's but the that's, culture. That's the, that's that is the, the reality. That's the, the culture. But the, but the thing is, is that actually because of the coaches thinking like that, and I knew that going in. Yeah, yeah. But that actually it pisses you off to the yes. point of like, look, people are not respecting you. Yes. People, do, you so you sure. have to make a name for yeah. yourself. And the other thing too is there's a level of pride that kicks in that mm -hmm. in, in any form of whether you're competing for an NFL spot sure. or you're competing for a job or. You're competing in your business. There's this level of you're not going to fucking beat me. And by the way, you'll notice me. I may not mm -hmm. win. I may not make yeah, the team, gonna... but you'll remember me. Sure. Yeah, right? Like sure. I, I never wanted to play or compete against someone and it not leave an impact. Whether I won or lost yeah. was was important to me, especially at the time. But looking back on it, what was really important to me was that I made an impact on yes. your life and that you remember sure. this yes. motherfucker's for real. Yeah. Yeah, right? Whether it was athletically or just my my yeah. mental state of mind, like I wanted to make sure you knew I was I was going to bring it every single day. But well, the fucked up part of that is that even with that, 
doesn't mean you're gonna even if you outplayed the people. But what? Yeah, but what? It, but no, the difference that is, is that if you have that mentality, <laughs> that's right. But but again, if you yeah. have that mentality, right, you may not win with that team. Yes. You may not win with another team. You yeah. may not make it in the league. Yeah. But it's the but people you're gonna succeed. You're gonna succeed. Yes. That and that's the whole point of the, what we're talking about here mm-hmm. is that people get discouraged because of one cut. Because yeah. of one loss, because of one bad thing that happens, right? And momentum goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Momentum, when yeah. it's really good, it's easy to cheerlead. Yeah. It's easy to mm-hmm. be at the top, leading from the top, leading from the front. But when when things go bad, a lot of people don't call you. Mm-hmm. A lot of th- a lot of opportunities are just hard to find, mm-hmm. hard to yeah. identify. When things are bad, it's bad. It feels yeah. dark, feels bleak, feels hard yeah. to get out of, mm-hmm. right? And it's at those moments that you change your life. Like yeah. those are the things that you remember the most. Like it's funny. Like we had a lot of success, whether it be in college, whether it be sports or otherwise. But I remember those times when we got my when I got my teeth kicked in. Yeah, right? I remember being embarrassed yeah. several different times. So when people ask, like, tell me about your favorite play during college, mm-hmm. I'm always like, man, I remember falling flat on my face, getting a concussion, sure. then running on the field without a helmet. Like, yeah, those yeah. are the, like those those, yeah. those are the yeah. stories. Yeah. Or or losing by 50 points and remembering. All this work to lose by 50 points? This yeah. is embarrassing. Yeah. Like, I don't want that to happen again. So you, the fear of of losing or or failure or being embarrassed can really trigger mm-hmm. a motivating moment for, for people in their lives. Or it can crush them. Yeah. yeah. Like, to, at least in my opinion. To that point, as a player, I didn't really feel alive in the game till I got smoked. Yeah. Mm. Agreed. Yeah. Till I got a real, like, somebody really, I, either, either. Wake up. It like, was either it was either I made a big play, you know what I mean? But it didn't do it as much. But when I got I, I made a tough catch and I got smoked, that's when I knew I was in a game. So you would like, actually we would way. actually have to go through. Wow. I would do, I was I was the same exact way. And so you have to go out and undercut a linebacker and get hit really hard, yeah. right? Like you got to go yeah. make make your presence known cuz yeah. if you're not getting hit especially on the outside, you you might not get a catch for a half. Yes. Right? Like yes. You well, go and, get hit. and sometimes you wouldn't get a catch at all. Anyways, yeah. so <laughs> listen, Rashid, speaking of uh, Rashid, I just wanted to thank you for uh for joining us on, on another Fuck You Friday podcast. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, everybody out there, uh, if you don't mind, please uh, you know, look us up We're on every single platform out there on instagram we're on twitter we're on uh, youtube all that stuff please like us download us subscribe to us and uh, we really appreciate it for today rasheed you're, you're the fucking me. man thank rasheed, you for you're the fucking me. man check That's me out on she 25 on ig there you go uh, i'm Give on a shout facebook out to you. as well uh you know i sell real estate now so let's get that <laughs> popping as well in chicago i, I, want, good, I want the escrow hey yeah, thank yeah. you very much well, definitely <laughs> all right. definitely all right, all right. That's a wrap. don't let me hang it not on camera <laughs> not on camera <laughs> All right. That's a wrap. All right.